Hello and welcome back to the Bicycle Mechanics Podcast. This is podcast number 21 and today we're going to cover a couple topics. We're going to do two topics. We're going to do the history of the wheel. This will probably be a a two or three part series and then we're going to go ahead and finish up uh, on Alfredo Binda uh, and the Giro d'Italia. So we all know about the wheel. The wheel is something that changed history for man and changed many things. Warfare, uh, moving of of items such as uh, trade and things like that. Um, So how was the wheel invented and how it evolved and changed throughout history? Um, It's certain that the wheel is the simplest but most important invention in human history. Without a doubt, the most important, if you really think about it. Um, The invention of the wheel revolutionized the first wars, allowed cargo to be transported over super long distances, and allowed um, the development of the first uh, automated processes. So the wheel, the whole earth was open to human, with the wheel, the whole earth was open to human exploration. So it kind of starts with uh, circular shapes, of course. that can be found throughout nature, uh, animal eyes, stars, circles, uh, circles in water, fruits are just a few examples. Um, in uh, human culture, uh, round huts have been used for thousands of years. Um, and at least 19,000 years ago, Homo sapiens were twirling diamond-shaped bone objects called bullroar, rhombus, at the end of a rope to produce strident sounds. Uh, they are among the oldest uh, musical instruments still used in, uh, in Australia. Even earlier on, fire by heat could be generated by striking one piece of wood against another using a rotational motion between the two hands. Beads and pendants, for instance, perforated using the same vertically rotating motion developed with the aid of a bow and possibly a flywheel throughout the most recent epochs of prehistory. So early on, uh, log rollers were used, um, kind of the earliest wheel. Um, They were used by uh, Neolithic men to transport heavy loads, such as uh, large stones um, uh, used for building. Uh, With the invention of the potter's wheel, which is one of the first wheels, um, around 3,500 BC, wheels began to be used in industrial processes. Uh, The idea behind rolling logs uh, and the potter's wheel was adapted to make the first wheel, In 2500 BC, wooden discs connected by an axle were invented. So the first wheels were really heavy, um, and it was because they were made of solid wood uh, usually. And it was only around uh, 1600 BC that lighter wheels uh, with the the brake with the brake mechanism were developed. Um, The first uh, iron rimmed wheels were invented after uh, 800 years allowing the construction of much faster vehicles, um, much more durable for war and long distance transport. Um, In ancient Greece, uh, water mills were built around 300 BC and the power of water flowing over the water wheel was used for grinding. Um, So this kind of brings up uh, another point about the wheel, how the wheel was used. It was used in warfare um, early on and it was used uh, with, uh, with to make chariots. In uh, my research on how the wheel was invented and how it was used early on, um, one of the things I came across uh, was um, wheels of war, uh, the chariot. Uh, chariots are fascinating. They were used um, through the Middle East for about a thousand years. 
Um, the first chariots were used by the Sumerians uh, in heavy battle wagons um, with solid wheels drawn by wild asses around 2600 BC. Uh, when, the, when the innovation of spoked wheels occurred um, and domestication of horses, the chariot became much faster and more mobile. Um, they carried an archer and a driver. Uh, the archer used uh, a composite bow. The chariot changed military tactics and spread to Greece, Greece Asia Minor, I Iran, India, and China around 1700 BC. With the advent of the mounted cavalry, the chariot's reign eventually came to an end around 500 to 300 BC. Uh, they were used to move quickly around the battlefield for transport, but mainly to shoot arrows at the enemy. And, uh, and they could shoot an arrow about every six seconds with very good accuracy. So one of the problems with chariots and their wheels was that they were expensive to make and to maintain. Um, kind of an early bicycle mechanics thing. Um, which is kind of interesting. So I read in, in one of my research pieces that that in China, apparently at one point, they had as many as 10,000 chariots. So that takes a lot of people to build them, but it also takes a lot to maintain them. So um, chariots also required flat ground to be effective and needed constant maintenance, and they broke down often. Um, chariot repair teams traveled with the army, ready to do maintenance when needed. The chariot's heyday came to an end uh, in the Battle of Guagamela in 331 BC between the, the Persians and Alexander the Macedonian. Uh, when the, the chariots of Darius III of the Persian Empire attacked the Macedonians, uh, Alexander had his infantry just open up the line and allow the chariots to pass through and reclose the line. The Macedonians uh, then surrounded the Persian chariots and destroyed them. And this was kind of when the chariots came to an end. Another reason they came to an end was that uh, horses had been domesticated and, like I said earlier, and cavalry became uh, the next big thing in uh, warfare. So, like I said earlier, the potter's wheel uh, was the first uh, used to, to mechanize uh, the wheel and use it um, for, uh, for potting. So... Um, uh, heavy, heavy swiveling stone wheels uh, were used to shape the clay. The potter's wheel made it easier to produce clay pots since it spun the clay quickly while allowing the craftsmen to make the pot with their hands. Um, as early as 3500 BC, the Sumerians were able to transport massive stones by rolling them along logs, like I talked about earlier. Um, it's kind of interesting, you know, they would roll, put, them on, put something on a platform and then put them on top of the logs and then rotate the logs as they would move uh, from the back to the front, depending on which direction they were going. Uh, then someone got the bright idea of drilling a hole in the middle of a sphere and mounting an axis on it, which we know today is an axle. Uh, this was the invention of the first wheel, uh, the foundation of our culture. Um, apparently following the advent of the potter's wheel, wheeled carts made of wood were widely available and they swiftly replaced sleds. The first versions of wheels consisted of little more than a flat piece of wood put on a circular axle with a wooden pegs holding it in place. It, it's interesting when you think about this because you think about working in the shop today, sitting there working, truing a wheel, even if it's a cheap wheel with a, 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 a crappy hub, um, maybe even a, a bolt-on wheel. 
and you think about these early days when they were trying to figure out how to make these wheels work and they they put these pieces of wood through uh the the wheel and the friction of that was um kind of a big deal and it took a while to kind of pull that along and they were like with the chariots the chariots were only really useful on flat ground anytime it anything went up or down they became um became not quite as effective um as they were on the flat ground uh flat and smooth ground as well but you think then you flash forward to now and we're looking at these hubs that are amazing with internal you know internal sealed bearings and carbon fiber rims and spoked you know uh spoked wheels with uh, stainless steel which is quite amazing so around 2000 bc spokes were developed in an effort to decrease weight a greater range of speeds uh, was possible with the spoked lighter wheels. The chariot was developed, as I talked about, as a result of this development and saw widespread usage in Egypt in many purposes, including hunting, parades, and, of course, war. Before spokes were added to make the wheels lighter and stronger, they were always heavy constructions. The wheel could only be rolled on certain surfaces and only with the help of animal traction. For this reason, the wheel was not a discovery by chance, but rather by convergence of a number of factors so like i, I talked about the water wheel uh, the water mill was uh, created by the greeks and used to grain to grind grain uh, was a groundbreaking at the time the greeks invented water wheels that put the power on running water to work they used these water wheels both to raise a bucket of water to a high level for irrigation and drive a shaft that drove a grinding machine these first water wheels were not vertical. They had grindstones positioned atop vertical shafts and with lower ends that dipped into rapid streams using vein of paddles. So, and then we move on to the wheelbarrow. Uh, the Chinese built a wheelbarrow with a large central wheel on which the entire load was mounted. It was easy to push around and each wheelbarrow could carry up to six people. So, the 1800s, we flash forward to the 1800s when the first brakes were invented. Uh, the oldest braking mechanism had wooden brakes. A lever pushed a block of wood against the wheels. The mechanism was used for many years on carriages carried by horses. The kind of brake included a long handle that served as a lever to facilitate braking. And so spoked wheels have survived uh, to the present day because of constant refinement, as we all know as bicycle mechanics. Um, from metal uh, strapping in the Iron Age through rubber tires and the eventual replacement of wood with metal. At, at, as time went on, people stopped using animals to pull their heavy loads and instead relied on motors. Nevertheless, human power was still required for lighter loads, such as those carried by bicycle, rickshaw, or wheelbarrow. From the time of the Romans forward, the wheel necessitated the building of straight and paved roadways. Robert Thompson used hardened rubber discovered by Charles Goodyear to make a pneumatic tire that was lighter and more resistant to wear. The hardened rubber tire was a milestone in the development of the wheel. So in about 1902, Louis Renault, a French automaker and pioneer invented the mechanical drum brake, but it was Gottlieb Dalmier who was first thought of a cable wrapped around a drum connected, connected to a vehicle's frame might halt movement. 
and in 1899 he made the first concept of a drum brake. Wilhelm Maybach created the first Mercedes in 1901 with a mechanical drum brake activated by a hand lever. So as we think about wheels and what we do every day as bicycle mechanics, um, wheels are a huge part of it. Uh, being a wheel builder, a wheel fixer, pounding on a wheel with a hammer to fix it, uh, getting tires on and off. Without wheels, um, the bicycle doesn't exist. So that's kind of why I want to do this piece on wheels. And I think um, we're going to move forward in time uh, next next time in a couple weeks when we talk about wheels again and talk about kind of... Uh, the evolution of bicycle wheels um, and kind of get away from the evolution of the wheel from 3500 BC. So um, with that, we're going to move on to, um, to the Giro and Alfredo Binda. So when it comes to Alfredo Binda and the Giro and uh, Alfredo Binda in general, we, we talked about a couple weeks ago, I read a little bit about how he was so good that he was almost too good for his own good because the fans didn't enjoy him because there was no, when he would show up to a race, everybody already knew who was going to win. Um, most of the time, it would be Alfredo that would win. So um, nowadays, it's it's rarely confirmed, but generally accepted as commonplace that race organizers will offer the 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 sport's biggest names undisclosed appearance fees to make this to make it to the start line. So um, at this point, I'm kind of reading a little bit out of um, give him give him some credit here. The beautiful race, the story of the Giro d'Italia by Colin O'Brien. Um, so events like the one-day classics, the Tour and the Giro, um, are their own draw. But for smaller stage races and one-day competitions, uh, a household name or two can be uh, the distinction between failure and success. And so palms are, are crossed with silver. In 1930, Binda was bribed to do the opposite. They wanted him as far away from the action as possible. The Gazeta del Sport, dello Sport paid him the equivalent of the winner's purse to skip the Giro and try his hand at the Tour de France. That means that he earned 22,500 lira without so much as pinning on a race number or turning a crank. And given professional cycling's proudly uh, avaricious nature, that coup must surely rank as the greatest success in the history of the sport. Just think about that. They paid him so much just to not come to the race that is amazing to me in Binda's absence 115 riders took to the start with the best chance they'd had in years of actually winning something for the first time in the event's history it started in the south way south in Messina on the island of Sicily where it spent three days before returning to the mainland it was a year of first at the Giro because an up-and-coming star by the name of Lurerco Guerrero won the first of his career's 31 stages, while Luigi Marchisio became the race's younger ever GC champion just a month after his 21st birthday. Unfortunately, that triumph was to prove the zenith of Marci Marciano's career, but the organizers and the fans weren't, weren't to know that. Along with Guerrero and Luigi Giacobbe, who finished second, age 23, the future of the competition looked bright. Binda's dominance might not be so absolute in future. After failing as a footballer, Guerrera turned to cycling relatively late in life, turning professional in 1928. 
By the 1930 Giro, he was 28 and already recognized as one of the country's most talented cyclists. And though he never really became the anti-Binda that so many race fans dreamed of, he was one of the few who could hold a candle to Sitigilio's Champismo. He joined Binda that summer in France as a part of a star-studded Italian national team and enjoyed a, a better race than his captain, finishing second to the French favorite André Lecroc Le and winning three stages. He even held the Maya June for a week. Binda, for his part, failed to live up to his billing, but ne nevertheless went home a happy man. Such was his fame that he'd convinced Henri Desgrange of the tour's founder, the tour's founder, to break one of his cardinal rules. He paid Binda a start fee. With his teammate Guerrera in yellow, the four-time Giro champion was sitting comfortably in third when he crashed on the seventh stage, losing an hour to his rivals in the general classification. Three days later, he abandoned the race in the Pyrenees. At the time, his departure puzzled both his opponents and the press, because despite the accident, he'd bounced back in a typically vigorous fashion by winning the following two stages. Years later, he would reveal that the real reason he returned to Italy was that the Gazetta hadn't paid up, and he, wasn't, he was getting worried about the welfare of his non-appearance fee. Retiring from that tour was, he admitted, one of the greatest regret in a lifetime of satisfactions. Both 1931 and 1932 were disappointments for the erstwhile unbeatable trombetier, resplendent in the yellow stripes, in the rainbow stripes of the world champion's jersey. Binda was welcomed back to the 19th edition of the Giro and started in scintillating form, winning twice and leading the general classification until a bad crash in the capital on stage six forced him to retire with a back injury. Though he was not without his supporters, Binda's departure delighted many of the more power, more colorful Tifosi who had been whipped into a rage several days previously when Cunye took an executive decision and, a, and award a tight sprint, sprint finish between Guerrera and Binda to the latter. Photo evidence would later prove the director right, but when it was posted for all to see in a shop window in downtown Pescara, where the stage had finished, the offending storefront was duly vandalized and the picture torn to shreds. In some ways, it was comforting to know that the refusal of the sport's partisan fans to let evidence get in their way of a resentful frenzy isn't a modern manifestation. In the following year, Binda struggled for form all spring, and while he started the 20th Giro at Lignanos, as Lignanos camp captain, he graciously slipped into a supporting role for Antonio Pezzenti when Pezzenti savaged the peloton with an explosive attack on the seventh stage. The pair were technically on different teams, but with the same man writing the check, so Binda was able to help Pezzenti hold onto the pink jersey until the finish and go home relatively satisfied with, with uh, an uh, uninspiring but professional performance. And before anyone could write the season off as a disaster, he headed south to Rome for world championships, where he comfortably beat his compatriot Remo Bartoni to take his third rainbow jersey. It's a record matched only by Spain's Oscar Ferrer and Belgian's Rick van Stierbergen and Eddie Merckx. And of course, after this book was written, uh, Peter Sagan has won the worlds three times as well. Binda was back at the Giro with his rainbow jersey in 1933 for his swan song. 
The 21st edition was arguably the first modern Corso Rosa, with 17 stages averaging a humane 197 kilometers. It was also the first time that the race featured an individual time trial and a specific prize for the best climber, the Gran Premio Della Montagna, these days commonly abbreviated as the GPM. No prizes for guessing who benefited the most from these innovations. Binda was more than a minute faster than second place Joseph Dosmier in the, in the time trial and the first of all four on the GPM summits. By this stage, the Giro was attracting a stellar crowd of foreign racers, but the main duel was between the aging Binda and the hungry, more popular Guerrera. The two were neck and neck, trading blows like prize fighters until the boxing analogy came in too close to reality for stage six in Rome. Racing for the line, the duo were battling for position when Guerrero crashed, trying to overtake his rival. Guerrero was furious, but the jury ruled that it had been Julie ruled that it had been a tree, not his adversary's arm, that caused the fall. In almost the exact same spot where Binda's nineteen thirty one Giro had come undone, Guerrero's quest for the nineteen thirty two Maglia Rosa ended. Binda, without his only genuine antagonist, to interrupt him was free to solo to a record fifth title, winning five of the remaining stages in the last of his career on the finale to Milan. Decades later, the brilliant journalist Gianni Barrera, whose name now officially adorns the same Italian stadium, same stadium in downtown Milan, where booze once rang out for Binda, wrote of the great champion, For me, Alfredo was the greatest product of Italian cycling. Even though I have the soul of a Kopi fan, I must make room for rationale. But he hadn't finished yet. Like any self-respecting musician, the trumpeteer would be back in the limelight for an encore, reinventing himself as a conductor and a new band of prod prodigiously talented performers. Some of his best work was still to come. And that is where we will end our podcast today thank you for listening to podcast number 21 and we will talk to you in a couple weeks and we'll continue on the wheel moving forward on the evolution of the wheel we'll move into more bicycle specific uh, wheel stuff and uh, until then be safe <laughs>